Hello, kia ora, and welcome to Purpose Fueled Performance with me, your host, Tim Jones, the Grow Good Guy. So kia ora, peeps. We are live on LinkedIn. That's the theory. And joining me this week on PFP TV is Katie Patrick. Hello, Katie. Um, I guess I normally just start off by asking, well, who are you? What do you do? Where are you from? Um, let's let's just go go there. All right. So you're not going to introduce me. Usually people no, have the end. This you, you, is so and so. It's way more fun. Yeah. It's way more fun because you know you know you who you are more than I know who you are. So who are you? What do you do? Who am I? Who am I? Okay. Well, my name's Katie Patrick. I'm an environmental engineer and a designer, and I specialize in behavioral psychology and gamification of environmental data. So I look at environmental data like forest data, energy data, carbon data, water data, um, pollution data, and I'm highly interested in the intersection between how we measure this data and then how we design it in a, in a feedback loop type of a way, kind of like a Fitbit. So you would see the data and then you'd be like, oh my God, look, I'm producing more trash than other people. I better do something about it. So it's really this intersection between the design of data and the um, the behavioral interface design. And both those two areas are quite complex and deep things to understand. Mm. There's a lot of theory behind it, a lot of computer science on the data side, uh, and a lot of psychological theories on the, the behavioral side. So I bring those two things together, which I think is a truly a magical, wonderful place um, to look at sustainability through. Um, and I have my book, How to Save the World, which is about that. And um, there's plenty of other stuff about me, but that's my my my, my, my starter intro of myself because Tim started for introduced 10. me, so I, <laughs> I can make him do it all on my own. Um, so how did you get into that? I mean, I, I can't imagine because you're originally from Australia. You're living in the US right now, although we were just sort of talking in the pre pre room that you've been in Costa Rica for the last four months. Um, mm -hmm. I, I can't imagine because I think we're roughly probably about the same age. I mean, there certainly wasn't um, an A-level course in the UK on, uh, you know, environmental data and uh, behavioral change uh, type topics. So how, how have you brought all that together? Did, did you train in that or have you kind of created this idea? Well, from what I can see, I'm the only person that I know of in the world who explicitly kind of puts themselves out there as the design of environmental feedback loops. Like I had to come up with this phrase, Fitbit for the planet designer. Like a lot of people are using Fitbit for the planet. That's not something like I invented. It's kind of been going around. But I've just adopted that as calling it this type of design mm. because um, it's a bit more specific than just saying I do like app design or I'm just a user interface designer. It, it's very much around the data. Um, and no, it's a very nascent space. I do feel kind of like I'm the only one who specializes in it, although other people do study it. They don't sort of perhaps go out and call themselves that um, mm. publicly. They might call themselves, you know, a, a research or they might be doing research or they might actually work yep. in it, but they've got a different title in an organization. Um, but the story of how I got here was just really layering on one domain of knowledge after another. So I started off as an environmental engineer. I was very passionate about sustainability, kind of came from a pretty deep kind of eco-activist space, wanted to save the earth and all that. Um, but then, you know, I really wanted to do it professionally. So then I worked in um, as a green building engineer, so on commercial buildings, you know, very conservative kind of establishment. Uh, you know, big engineering and architecture companies yep. are, are, are like that. But back then, that was in the early 2000s. Really, the only thing that you could do in was really energy efficiency of office buildings. Mm. Like that, that was the job. Like you would look at an architectural drawing and then you would sort of use some software to figure out how many kilowatt hours it used and maybe recommend like some light changes. Like it was like <laughs> the most boring thing I could ever imagine doing with my life. And back then, there was like an architect called Ken Yang. He was like one of the first kind of biophilic architects to have a, a book out there. Mm. And uh, I was just fascinated by the idea of like, you know, eco cities, like trees on the tops of buildings mm. and little like archways that would go from one building to another with like hanging gardens of Babylons and something really futuristic. I had this incredible vision in my mind and the idea of just doing energy efficiency audits and like commercial, yeah. I was going to die, like no way. Um, so then I started a, a media company because I really wanted to rebrand sustainability. So that took me into this very creative um, pathway. Well, not creative, it was really entrepreneurial, but it was essentially in the creative and in the media industry. So I was constantly producing content and kind of selling the vision of sustainability. Um, but then everything started to go 
more um, sort of the Silicon Valley startup way, you know, Facebook emerged and then Twitter and, mm. you know, the startup and the social media thing was this, this big thing then. And, and your media was naturally moving all uh, digital. And so the natural way was to start, you know, learning app design. What can we do with websites? What can we do with video? So I was moving into all that and I started to really think about like, well, if I really want to start changing people, like that's what I'm here for, you know, making videos and articles and blogs, like mm. I don't know if this is doing anything, you know, like I really want to fundamentally change the numbers. And I started to really think about, you know, it's kind of like from that Simon Sinek, um, that video that made him famous, the golden circle, which is why, why are you here? Mm. Why are you here? And I'm like, well, because I want to change the numbers. Like it has to, if it doesn't like actually like plant a tree or it doesn't actually get a solar panel put on or save water, like I'm wasting my time here. So I really started to think about like, well, how can I like show the numbers to people? Can I like show mm. the kilowatt hours on the wall or something? Or could you have a shower and it would show you like a little screen that told you like how many, um, you know, liters of water your shower had used or and I started to think through all of the different touch points in the the engineering architecture of the modern world, you know, in cars, do they measure the cars? No. Does the car know how many, um, how much fuel it's using at any time? If you could do a trip and you drive for 15 minutes, does it tell you? I think the Prius might tell you, but I don't know. My car definitely doesn't tell me, just mm. a regular Volkswagen. Um, and then I just found that pretty mind blowing. You know, I was like, oh my God, we do not have the data for all this stuff. It's not being collected. It, mm. My wall does not show me the kilowatt hours or the CO2 I'm using. My shower doesn't, nothing, nothing does, you know. And the deeper I looked into this data infrastructure, I realized how much of it was missing from, um, it just wasn't there. Like you could not get it. Some of it is there now. Um, some, I mean, some of it was there before. It's in PDF documents. They're like, sure, you can get that. Just download yeah. the Excel spreadsheet. If you're trying to you build an app, downloading an Excel spreadsheet does not work. You need an API. You need a proper API. Yeah. You can request and it updates in real time and you can code it into your app. And I realized that was missing. And that was really where I started to get um, very interested in this. And I started looking at the way games were developed and behavior design apps. I went to a game design startup once and this woman said, you know, you should be really looking at behavior change apps. And I'd never really thought about what behavior change was. And she's like, oh, mm. there's this whole thing of like habit design, habit design and behavior change. I started looking that up in Amazon and looked at all these apps. And I was like, oh, this is like a whole like field of people that focus in behavior design apps and habit design. And then I realized this intersection between behavioral psychology, game design had a lot to offer and getting this environmental data and designing around this feedback loops, you know, was this intersection of these very um, mm. fields that could have quite a magical potential. And there was still, and there was quite a lot of academic research in the space that had not filtered outside of the academic world as academic papers do often tend to just stay only with other academics. Um, so I started finding more of these papers and revealing all these very fascinating insights that I felt I could bring to the world. And this has just fascinated me. So that's what I do. I find the insights, I bring them to the world. Hopefully I can share this knowledge, um, you know, with people more and help inspire people to start thinking this way because it's um, it's enormously powerful and has great capacity for change, all these um all these things that are quite common in other industries. Like it's very novel in sustainability, but a lot of this stuff is very normal in other industries and they do it all the time, but we've been very slow to adopt it in sustainability. So much goodness to unpack in there. I think, um, yeah, you, you, you were just bang on the money because it's so hard to know. I think there's, there's, there's a lot of people, a lot of organisations who want to do more good, but they don't know, currently don't know how much good they're already doing. Um, so it's hard for them to know, well, are, are we the good guys or the bad guys currently? Um, and then in terms of that sort of impact measurement, impact assessment, <clears throat> where, where do we, what do we try and change? And are we actually getting meaningful outcomes that are making things better? Because it's, it's really easy to think you're doing good, um, but actually be causing, uh, I guess, as, you, as you'd say, unintended consequences in other areas. So I think that's a really, really crucial thing is just helping people get clarity on well, are, are we moving the numbers in the right direction? Um, and yeah, you're right. I think historically sustainability has just been like a either a dark pit of academic or academia, um, people really, really deep in the in the data and the numbers, or it's like you were, well, we've swapped out the, the lights to LEDs and we've saved a kilowatt hour this year. Woo, we're going to save the planet. And it's kind of like, well, neither's working, clearly. So that's super cool that you, you've kind of cr created your own niche in that. Um, 
yeah, that's just it's super super cool. So what what does that look like today? What do you what specifically are you doing? What sort of projects are you creating or working on right now that are sort of bringing this all to life? Oh, well, one thing I'm really excited about is uh, this startup I have called Energy Lollipop. And um, I got excited by this. Uh, it was about a year and a half ago. I was working on some software design to try and bring in more solar. It was a way of selling and sizing solar more efficiently and cheaply than it's done before. And all these people try to communicate um, energy and carbon in all these different ways. They were like, look at the ratio between like wind and gas and solar and coal. Um, and uh, why don't you show like how, you know, just all these kind of like crazy numbers. And I was like, listen, you just need the CO2 that all the buildings, it needs to be one number, like just not how many megawatts of solar, just like the number, mm. right? So I was like, well, let's just put the number of CO2 that the grid is putting out on a big screen and we'll make it big and round. It'll look like a lollipop on the street. And I got this idea because along the 101, when you're driving into San Francisco, there is a, um, a, a van, I think it's a combi van. Um, I don't know sure what brand it is, but it's got Lyft, you know, the, um, you know, like Uber, the other, do you right. have Lyft? Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. You have it? Uh, um, I don't think we have Lyft L here, but we have Uber and some others. Yeah. Oh, it's L-Y-F-T. It's like yeah. a direct competitor to, to Uber. And they have this giant truck like on a pole and you can't miss it. It's their advertising mm. on the side of the freeway. And I'm like, why can Lyft put a giant truck on a pole that we can't miss, but I can't see the carbon dioxide emissions from my city on a screen, I can see the stock market, I can see the weather, there's mm. so much data, there's so much advertising at me all the time. Why, mm. ha and why can't I see it anywhere? Why has nobody in this whole field of climate change figured out how to put carbon dioxide on a screen so we can see it on the freeway or anywhere? And so I thought, mm. I'm just gonna make this happen. This is such a missing gap in our world. Mm. So I've purchased this screen. Um, it's about a one meter diameter, big screen, and we've got the yep. data feed. Luckily in California, we can get the data from the ISO, which is a electricity operating organization. Um, and I'm gonna tour it around California. It'll tell you what the CO2 emissions are at any point in real time, just like a Fitbit nice. for the planet. Um, I'm gonna show everybody and see how they respond to it. <clears throat> nice, so you're gonna like park it up in different locations and get the local feed from that location or more generically, like California well, or it will be only California because we cannot get nobody in the world can get the carbon emissions of their own neighborhood or town which I think is a wow. crisis and something I really want to work on um I've made a lot of inroads to talking to um government and different utilities to try and figure out how to make this happen but it's going to be quite a push it'll probably take some legislation and be quite a big deal to get the electricity utilities to um release so you would be able to have like one number for your city or mm. your town we don't currently have that and so part of this push with the energy lollipop is to start to advocate for that because you're right the first thing people will ask is well why does it say all of california and why doesn't it say mm. like my town that we're in right now and it'd be like yeah well let's lobby for that you know? <laughs> yeah um, because it's it's exciting because if you could get your own say if you lived in a smaller town you know or if you're in a city your own neighborhood you could legitimately with some work really impact that number like you could mm. see the whole idea of the feedback loop is that you can see the result of your action in the number and you could legitimately do that you know you have some meetings you work on it for six months you meet once a month mm. you know you work with the schools and the churches and all the groups and everybody's really into it you know group of people groups of people when they're motivated can be very powerful and seeing that feedback is a, a fundamental thing to human psychology to keep them motivated so i think that this neighborhood score is um could be enormously powerful with ac activating people. So. Mm, totally. Um, so I'm just thinking, you know, with my kind of B Corp um, impact assessment uh, hat on, um, you know, you, you can, companies are asked, you know, are you measuring your carbon footprint? And I think increasingly a lot of companies are thinking about their carbon footprint. And I guess even, you know, on, on our power bill, because I, I clearly I work from my home office, you know, on our power bill, they, they I think, I'm pretty sure that they'll say, um, you know, this is your energy usage, give or take, this is kind of like your carbon emissions. So I guess th there is a relatively analog way that you could maybe start collecting that, but you're not going to get that real-time data. And I guess it's a bit of a snapshot, potentially, and it will take a lot of legwork. But yeah, that would be super, super cool to be able to collect that. I mean, so I know um, like Christchurch uh, City Council, where, where I'm based, you know, they're, they're really looking at this kind of stuff, you know, climate commissions and working out how do we. So 
I don't know, if, you, if you're looking for uh, other test places, let's see if we can maybe, you know, get one going in New Zealand for you. Who knows? I am. We might need to send it over, though, because I don't think I'm allowed to visit New Zealand. No one's allowed in right now, are they? Well, I, I can lend it to you. You can well, borrow I'm sure it. We, I'm sure we could. Well, let's, let's see what we can do. I'll, get I'll, someone I'll get, to cover um, the shipping. Get someone well, to ship into I'll, the shipping I'll, and chew it around and, yep, see what we can do. <laughs> I'll talk to my mate Scott Kotal, who's business development manager at Meridian Energy, who are all about renewable energy. And I don't know, we'll see if we can get something. Um, where is where is the um, where does the power come from in New Zealand? So it's really interesting. So I think about eighty five percent of it is is classified as renewable. So we've got a lot of um, I guess old school hydroelectric that was built. You know, some of it sort of like hundred years ago, give or take. <clears throat> um, and then we've got quite a bit of wind um, wind power. And then the, the remainder is coal and other bad boo fuels. So okay, we said about general grid is about 86, I think, percent renewable. So we're not bad. Well, that's, yeah, that's good. So your, your energy yeah. lollipop might only show like a little bit of um, numbers, but, it, you know, we still have to get rid of the last little bad bit. Yep. Yep. Mm. Yeah. So um, have you, did you, I mean, you sort of said you, you started out as a bit of an activist environmentalist from, from the early, was that from like a super early age or, or did you kind of go a bit through the corporate mill and then kind of go, actually, I want to be more of an environmentalist or, or has this been like from day one, you've just been all about saving the planet? Yeah, kind of. It started pretty early. I mean, I spent my childhood being very invested in art. My grandparents were... Um, sort of masterful um, artist. My grandfather was a graphic designer. Back, That was before you had computers and you actually had to be able to paint a billboard by hand with perfect fonts and perfectly photorealistic oh, wow. pictures. They had to actually be mm. really good artists. And my grandmother was a fashion designer where you had to draw everything yourself. Yeah. Um, so I got kind of brought up in this very... Um, and my mother also, you know, was... Um, she didn't have, like, a job as an, as an artist, but the primary... Um, home culture was that of being a good technical uh, artist. Um, but mm. uh, in, in that, I just remember all of the, um, the the messaging that was around that time. I, mean, I was born in 1980. So, you know, we had a lot of very strong environmental messages then. There was, mm. um, you know, stuff about like anti-nuclear. You know, do you remember the yep. Muroa Atoll? Like that was would have been big in New Zealand as well. There was a huge campaign from Greenpeace about the Muroa Atoll. Like I was 14 when that happened. Mm. There was a lot of stuff about whales, um, uh, you know, pictures of whales being harpooned by um, Japan on the news. That was very upsetting. We had all of the... Uh, the famines, there was a lot of marketing for the skeletal children from the famines in Africa, very upsetting, um, you know, wanted yep. to help. So I was just very, as a child, very um, affected by that. So my earliest, you know, kind of like career thoughts at being 12 or 13, when I kind of got over the idea I would be an artist, it was all, you know, kind of about the planet and it always has been. Um, but also, you know, it's, I'm always, uh, you know, there's one side of me that's deeply in sort of the arts and creative and culture and pop culture, and the other half is kind of like deep in sustainability. It's interesting you got you got that mix of um, sort of science, environmental engineering, and and what have you. But the the creative, the artist, I mean, that's quite a unique skill set uh, because generally people are normally, you know, they're arty or they're sciencey. But you seem to have got a, a a mix of that um have you cultured that do you think or, or is that just you no that's just very much me and it's a, it's like a difficult thing if you are like one of those people like me who you are kind of like equally split um on both sides uh it's a challenge to find a place mm. for yourself in the world because the world isn't really built for people like us you know yep. it's if i'm only doing technical work like if i'm working as like a computer programmer engineer i just feel a complete spiritual death that i'm not yes. doing what i was here for and if mm. i'm just hanging out with designers and designing stuff i feel an equal sense of intellectual death that i'm not really <laughs> using my mind properly so each of these places are these feelings of very feeling like it's not right for me you know at a, at a really deep level um, so I really had to push very fiercely to um, find this new path for myself. You know, I said this kind of like Fitbit for the Planet designer mm. path is is unique because um, I had to really, really push at a, at a sort of a really deep level inside myself to find where I would fit in the world, where I could be doing both things simultaneously, the computer mm. science of sustainability and also the design interfaces where I am doing both these parts of myself at the same time, which is yep. the only place that I'm really going to be happy. You know, we all kind of end up as, mm. I suppose, user interface designers or founders or graph or um, 
you know, data visualization people, you know, yep. people like me. We've got a question from Peter, or Pete Leach, but I'll get to that in a second. So I just want to dive a little bit more into into this because I think this is a real on, with my kind of purpose hat on. This is a really this is a really critical thing, like following the calling that you are feeling compelled to follow, um, and navigating the path. Um, uh, th there might be m many people like you who haven't had that courage or ability or um, I guess the true connection to who they could be, who are stuck, you know still in that engineering office and um, doing, um, you know, slight tinkering, tinkerings to uh, energy usage on big buildings um, who have a deeply creative side of them that they can't express. Um, it's, I think it's just, just want to acknowledge that it's really cool that you've, you've had the ability, I guess. And, and did you have to fight for that? Or, or did you feel that you were in a position where you could kind of follow your, your calling and, and create something for yourself? Um, yeah. Or, or, or did you have to kind of really fight for that? Well, I mean, I just first want to say that I think, you know, like I write about this in my book and it's become a real pillar of the way I live my life, which is that I think you need to put your creative genius zone, whatever that is for you, and even if you don't know what it is, you just need to try to figure out what it is, uh, put that at the centre of your life's work, you know, and make it like going to the gym, like every day. And I do it through just asking these, what I call these big like wonder questions, which is a phrase I borrowed from someone else. You just say like, what is the most creative thing I can do right now that's like for the greatest good of the universe and just see what comes to you. I don't know. I have a lot of stuff that comes to me when I ask that really open kind of question. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, if you sit on it, that question for long enough, something will yep. come to you. And so I just try to spend, you know, like sometimes you're just walking out the street and then you'd be like, what is the most creative thing I needed to do? Well, I think I just really need to look up green walls today on Instagram and I need to make a collection of green wall pictures because I just, that's what it is for me today, you know? Um, yep. And then, you know, that leads to one thing and then you meet someone and then you learn something and blah, blah, blah. You're just kind of like making sure you're investing in that flow every day. Yep. I think that's just like a fundamental thing we all need to do so you don't end up yep. um, eroding that kind of having like it's like a cancer instead of a growth a fertile growth you know um but with me you know like people often say they're like oh you know you're so you're so strong you're so confident like it's completely not true the deep uh, i've gone so deep into this space now not because i'm was courageous it was because i was lost you know mm. i came to silicon valley I didn't have the confidence to be a technology entrepreneur in the bro tech VC scene. I just was overwhelmed with anxiety. I, I was in the scene, but I couldn't, I wasn't like turning up at VC being like, give me $3 million and here's my pitch deck. And I was mm. just too shy and I, I just wasn't feeling it. Um, uh, And I was, I was just really, I just didn't know what to do. I didn't feel, I'd broken up with my fiance of four years. I was in my mid thirties. Like I just, I wasn't in my home of Australia where I grew up, um, but I knew that I had to go forward. Like you can't just go back. Mm. You have to keep, you know what they say, the only way out is through. And the only way that I could find through this period in my life was to just dig into my creativity. I was so anxious. Like I didn't feel that I'd found it yet. And so I was just mm. like, just do creative flow every day. And that's what I started doing. It was about seven years ago. And I would just be like, well, today I'm going to just design a game. So I'm going to do is design a game yep. today. I'm just going to like write an article today. I'm going to make a video. Fuck it. I'll just do a podcast. You know, like what am I interested in today? I'm just going to read some mm. academic papers. And I just started scurrying and digging until it's kind of started to form. Nice. There's so much, so much gold in that. Um, because you know, when I'm doing purpose coaching with people, you know, th there's so many, um, so many great concepts, you know, it's like uh, from uh, the, the, you know, the Knights of the Round Table kind of ethos, you know, you must enter the forest where it looks darkest to you. You know, you, you kind of have to go into some tough times to find out who you really are so that you can become who you could become. Um, but also linked to that, I think, is, you know, you, you have, you, you know, you have been born like, and, and the chances of you being born as you are so infinitesimally small that you should not actually exist. So it's like you've been put here for a reason. What is that reason? And and I think, you know, the fact that you were able to connect to that and go, it's not mucking around with LEDs. I'm going to keep picking on that. You know, I'm not here to muck around with LEDs on a building design that actually when actually the fundamental design of the building is what needs to change, you know, and 
you're so right. You know, if you lean into that curiosity, I'm, I'm a big fan of sort of Jungian psychology and, and the whole idea of, you know, what, what is curiosity? Why do we have curiosity? Because if you think there's, there's a guy, I can't remember his name, but he did, he's done a, a whole lot of research on sleep. And, you know, the fact that humans sleep for six to eight hours every day defies evolutionary principles because to put yourself in a position of complete insecurity for eight hours when theoretically any predator can come and eat you doesn't make sense. So what his his theory is, is that um, sleep must be, therefore be the most important thing for a human for long-term survival because that trumps you not sleeping and being safe. And I think um, when you think about curiosity, like again, on an evolutionary perspective, if you're too curious, you end up falling over the cliff edge or you stand in the middle of the road and go, well, does a car actually hit me if, if, it, if it runs into me? I want to know. But that element of curiosity, I think, is, is part of that deep evolutionary need for, for you to work out who you should be. And following that, you know, following the curiosity, following the ideas that pop up is a really, really key part of the journey that I take people on when they're looking for more meaning and purpose in their life. Because I guess to paraphrase Jung, you know, the the thing that you're drawn towards is his theory was it's the best potential version of you calling calling you towards itself. And I think you have just epitomized that. It's like you, you felt compelled and drawn that there was something bigger that you could connect into that could create so much more contribution and good. And I think you're just an, a living, breathing example of it. Oh, that's very um, kind of you. Um, thank you. I would I, actually, I have a video that I made about this, which is a, about that, you know, the kind of like the universe is expanding since it started to mm. begin, you know, billions of years ago. And if you see this kind of evolution of the universe, even before life, like all of the atoms and all of the, the forces of the universe were evolving even before life started. Mm. And that we're kind of just like part of that flow. And the universe, one thing that is consistent about the universe, it's always evolving and becoming more complex. It's becoming more mm. artful. All of the creatures, you know, that we have now are much more complex than they were, you know, millions of years ago. And that, you know, we're just kind of part of this incarnation of that flow. And to see your, to bring it back to like basic sustainability day to day, like sustainability is not like we're fighting the system or we have to like clean up, you know, you take a completely different paradigm to that and uh, be like, well, how do you continue the flow of the universe? How do you serve mm. the flow of the universe in your greatest sense of creativity and innovation mm. and joy? Um, what can you create that's wonderful and channel that through you? It's a completely different paradigm mm. to come from, very happy, wonderful space. Yes. When they're like, oh, we have to stop that and those people are bad yeah. and that kind of like, you know, who's got, yeah, who's yeah. got energy, energy for that, you know? Yeah. And I think that's what I love about your vibe and your book in particular. You know, it's it's because I think historically sustainability has been that it's been the slap on the hand. No, stop doing that. No fun. You know, don't do anything. Everyone just stay at home. Don't breathe. You know, we're all <laughs> destroying the planet. You know, don't have kids. We're all destroying the planet. Whereas I think that's ex and it's something that I've struggled with. And when, when I first was kind of uh, went out, on, went out on my own and was trying to work out, like, how do I save the world and what part can I play on that? Um and my, my initial uh, branding, I called myself a professional agitator. And it was like, I want to get in there and, like, you know, dig in people's ribs and go, come on, what are you, why are you being such a dick? Like, wake up, man. Like, you're, you're the problem. And massive thanks to a good mate of mine, Michael Philpot. He was just like, dude, you just, you just like, you just look like an angry guy shouting at people on the side of the street. No one wants to hang out with that guy. And you're, well, and after we all a while, kind of started there, I think, in some way. You know? I think we do, because <laughs> you do get angry. I, I, it's, I guess it's all part of that change process and, and mm. almost like the grief process of like, oh, my God, why can't everyone else see how ridiculous the whole thing is? You know, um, I've got another mate of mine um, on Facebook. He, he's all about, you know, the bullshit jobs, David Graeber's, you know, kind of stuff. You know, why, why have we got four and a half billion people doing jobs that are meaningless and, you know, aren't actually contributing to anything real and a value and yeah, it's, it's easy to attach to that and get quite angry and sort of feel like you've been duped and like, who's who's actually in charge of this show? Why are we all doing this? But you're right. And, and now I try and bring the energy, the happiness, the vibes. And it's like, actually, you know, purpose and saving the world can be the best party on the street. And we'll have, we'll have a ton of fun and we'll save the planet instead of actually, you know, doing something mediocre over here and not having that much fun, really. So, yeah, I think you're just um, encapsulating so much goodness in, in all of that. Oh, uh, so thank you. you. And that, yeah, and that way of getting sort of angry at other people, I mean, ultimately in your life, like it's not about, you know, everybody else. Like it's about just what yeah. you can do in your life. Like humans do totally. things by copying other humans. You have to become an exactly. example. 
like people sometimes people poo poo like individual behavior change but really individual behavior change is a huge part of how everything mm. changes you can't get away from that um so basically if you can channel your highest form of creativity and contribution and innovation in a way that inspires everybody around you that's how you do it like being angry at other people like that's yeah. a very <laughs> yeah. primitive and annoying like what are you contributing to the world you know by yeah. by doing that and you can you, you can motivate someone say if i wanted to get everybody in this apartment block to i don't know go plastic free or get an ev do you think if i went around there's like 30 apartments here if i went around to everybody and got really annoyed at all of them yeah banging it on the doors really negative and depressing or i was really <laughs> depressing i said like climate change is terrible the earth is going to yeah. be on fire We're die. you know yeah. like one of those like jesus people on the street you know like this is i just want to tell you how bad climate change is i'm really worried and it's really important that we all get electric cars now there's only like three electric cars in the parking lot and all the other cars yeah. aren't like I don't think that would be the best way to connect with people, you know? Like I could connect firstly, I got to get myself an electric car. I got to go plastic free. And then I just want to build relationships with people be like, "Hey, you know, I'm doing yeah. this thing. I was thinking we could do this." You know, there's a whole lot of like psychological ways that are very friendly, very open. I would focus, you know, all based on building relationship and good vibes and social sharing and creating a new identity of adoption. It would have to be a really positive a, a positive yeah. thing in order for it to work. Totally. Yeah, no, 100%. Um, so we've got we've got a question from the crowd. Uh, so Pete Leach, he um, has asked a question. Oh, I know what I can do. I can even, uh, we can go better than that. We can uh, put it on the screen for you. There we go. So have you seen the documentary Seaspiracy? If it's true, why aren't we focusing on saving our oceans? So thoughts on that? It's, it's not a good question for me because I haven't seen it. And also because I don't work on oceans, so I don't know that much about them. There we go. Don't watch like a true politician. Um, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry, Pete. I don't know. But I, all I can say is from my own self why I don't work on oceans. Um, well, I don't like the beach that much. Um, more of a, more of a <laughs> so, forest. So if the beaches go, we're all, Katie's okay. I'm more of a forest girl. <laughs> more of a forest girl than a beach girl. Um, uh, but I mean, I, I think though that one thing that has humans have been doing very well at to give a, 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 a decent answer is um, decarbonizing the electricity grid. And I've been drawn to the electricity grid as well because kilowatt hours are really easy to measure. Mm. Like most places can measure kilowatt hours. The sensors are kind of pretty well made. You can do it. Um, and then the, 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 the mechanisms to doing that is like solar, wind, energy, closing power stations. That's something everyone can get into. It's kind of like a machine that we can all tinker at. Um, whereas other issues like agriculture, um, the ocean, um, forestry, these are harder things to measure and harder things to activate people on. So I think the movement has been slower in those because they're, um, they're not just like a nice clean machine like the electricity grid. Yeah. And I guess it's, I mean, I have seen Seaspiracy um, in the LinkedIn comments. I've tagged uh, Bubba Cook, who uh, is sort of working with the Marine Stewardship Council and WWF on a lot of sea stuff. Um, it's, I think like a lot of environmental challenges, it's big, it's complex, and there are no easy, quick wins. Um, you know, in terms of fishing, uh, you know, theoretically, there is, well, you can make the argument that sending one massive trawler um, that goes and gets a whole lot of fish in some ways is more efficient and less environmentally damaging than having a thousand small one-man fishing boats go out. Um, you know, there is, again, but it's like, there's good and there's bad because that means, well, there's one trawler, which means there's now a hundred or a thousand guys who don't get to go and fish, which means they don't kind of have a job, which means they're not contributing to their local village or town. So it's really, really, really complex. I think the, where, where I got to, I had, I had a, a bit of an email exchange with Bubba and he was, I was kind of like, is, is really the best thing kind of just to buy local and buy in season. And he's like, yeah. I mean, if tuna is a non-native fish to your city, maybe you just don't have it so much because you know the, the the environmental footprint of getting tuna to a a landlocked city in the middle of the continental us you know it's kind of not meant to be there <laughs> you know what, what's the local fish that you could get or you know pick something else so yeah sea spruce i don't know there's been some interesting some people say it's a complete sham some people are saying no it's pretty accurate but 
there was just some stats that they kind of overinflated. But I think this is why what you're doing, Katie, is so important. It's, it's like, let's actually get the data, but let's get the right data. And then let's work out if we, if we change this, what happens on the other end? And I think like yeah. you said, we've had so little of that, or we've had it, but it's been hard to find. Yeah, well, I'm always on about causality, but um, but I mean, just to like, I mean, I I wouldn't know. I don't know if there is any way to really measure fish. You know, they can measure fishing boat <laughs> activity, but you know, some things. That's why I said the electricity grid's really easy to measure. Uh, so that's why it sort of gets a lot of you know a lot of people work on that. Whereas mm. you know the oceans, I mean, it's a hard thing to measure. You can't get that immediate feedback loop. You can't make a change and be like, look, we did it. We got ten percent down. You know, these are very challenging systems systems to work on. But I mean, I don't understand why everybody is still hooked on eating animals so much like we've really got to get over this like idea. I mean I'm not I eat a mostly vegan diet I'm not one of those like extreme what do you call them crazy extreme vegan types but I do think everybody's got to go like there shouldn't be any excuse for not being like 80 or 90 percent plant-based at least like everybody mm. can do that and if you really love meat and you want to eat it eat it like once a week or once a month but the bulk of the diet yeah. should really be made of plants and not animals and and not fish you know so we just eat too much of it mm. Yeah, it's crazy. Listen, because um, as part of the, I, I co-teach an MBA program at the local university here in Canterbury on creating impact, impact-led enterprises, and um, it's it's really interesting when you get down to like what why in particular kind of sushi kicked off, and I think there was I think it was tuna in general. I think I'm pretty sure Bubble can fact check this. Um, the uh like tuna was a really poor man's fish in japan and it was i think it was sometime in the 80s someone kind of figured hey we can probably package this and sell this and they kind of created the modern sushi box idea and it just exploded in the us and the rest of sort of asia and so suddenly tuna just sort of became you know sushi and tuna became a thing whereas before it hadn't become a thing so yes yeah, it's, it's interesting how i guess marketing and 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 consumerism can drive trends which create massive um negative externalities um based on a whim um, well they can start yeah. making the um the imitation um sushi you yeah, can get it yeah. down it's like plant-based sort of um yep like impossible meats and yeah they've got like impossible impossible sushi now it's it's time to do the marketing mm. and to spread and take over mm. so is that because obviously they're all they're all california based uh, companies aren't they impossible is that no, I, I is it easy? <laughs> I'm, pretty, I'm pretty sure they're west coast no, it, Do you, i mean yeah, yeah, is that easy to find in the states yeah there's a lot of it totally you go to trader joe's safeway there's a huge refrigerator full of frozen fake meat there's a um, lot of variety of fake meat i personally am an enormous fan of fake meat having been a vegan leaning person since i was 12 years old and um it's made a total difference i can eat all of the standard american food now with the nice. fake meat and the fake cheese it's great and it tastes good. Yeah, I think it does. It's interesting. Yeah, because I mean, over here you, you can see a couple of there's a, there's a few there's increasingly more. Um, so I'm I'm trying to totally on the, sort of the eighty percent vegetarian. So um, we've got like this um, uh, like a meat free burger patty, which is like quinoa and um, chickpea like little patty tastes pretty good. Um, there's also there's a local mushroom company that's kind of really trying to get into like mushroom based burgers. So it's like a lot of mushroom with some lentils and beans in it. Um, yeah, some hemp burgers. Yeah, there's there's some stuff coming through, but the 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 fake meat stuff. I think there's a chicken based brand in New Zealand. Um, haven't tried that one yet. Um, yeah, it's I'd say it's getting here. What's interesting there's there's a quite a big um, I guess a lot of people would call them a dairy company based in uh, Canterbury called Sinlay, who are a big corporation. Um, but what's really interesting is they're now branding themselves as a milk company, not a dairy company, because they're kind of recognizing that bovine milk might not be the future. So it might be another form of um, nut milk. So, yeah, I think that's because New Zealand's, uh, you know, are, are certainly top two exporter is, is milk-based uh, dairy you know, like bovine dairy products. So it's, it's a real uh, area of contention, which we will try not to open up and you won't have much to comment on anyway. Um, I wouldn't imagine on the New Zealand uh, dairy industry. Uh, but yes, it's interesting to see how we need, to, we might need to transition locally here um, from one of our big export products. 
Well, I think it's very exciting that a, um, a dairy company is now identifying as a, as a meat company because that's a very bold thing for a company to do that's always done things yep. a certain way. It's a massive, that's a complete 100% change in every single yep. process. And most of them seem to not want to do that. They want to yep. kind of stick with protect their, uh, or a lot of these are just owned by big corporations. So, mm. you know, like, I mean, Silk is a, an almond breeze, or like the really big supermarket brands of um of non-dairy milk here and they're all just owned by the same enormous corporations that own like mm. hundreds of brands so they'll own dairy brands and they'll own nut milk brands and oat milk brands yep. and vegan brands and meat brands and they're just one of many brands so uh i don't know it, it doesn't really matter but yeah i mean getting companies to choose you know to, to realize what they're actually trying to provide for people rather mm. than the mechanism um good for them hopefully it works yeah. out yeah, no, big shouts to Hamish Reid, the Director of Sustainability. He gave a talk at one of the, the um, lectures, uh, lecture nights at UC and shared their kind of future plans for their sustainability. And it is truly phenomenal. Like if they get even probably 20% of it, it, it it's game changing, next level kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, there's, I think that's the thing that's really interesting, you know, but it's the same this is why I think, I think, you know, organizational purpose and doing good at an organizational level is the same as the individual. You can you can stay with the sunk costs of, well, I've I've trained to be an environmental environmental engineer. I don't like my job. I realize that this is not the future. I realize that I'm not going to be happy here, but I'm so connected to the identity of me being an environmental engineer. And what would mum and dad say if I quit my job and moved to the States and wanted to start a tech company? You know, all of those thoughts that are the same as what go through um, a senior leadership table. Well, you know, we've been a We've been this kind of company for 50 years or, you know, worse, 200 years. And my great granddad, you know, was firm that we would have to stay doing this forever and ever and ever and ever. And, you know, it's that fine line between the sunk costs and, and you know, maximizing those versus, well, we have to change. Um, I think it's, I think the parallels are the same between organizations and people. You get stuck on the thing that you're doing and, and you can't see the wood for the trees as to what you could be. Yeah, well, often like the world decides it for you, you know, like yep. um, like my media company in Sydney closed, I mean, two reasons. One, because the economy changed and it was not financially viable anymore, even though it had been a multi-million dollar company for a few years. And uh, and two, because I was completely burned out. I was mm. completely fried and I needed to take a, a year off, a year of just really doing nothing. So mm. it was kind of like sometimes it's, it's not that you decide, it's that the world, if you don't get it right, the world decides for you. You yep. get sick or something will change. It kind of forces you to ultimately yep. um, have that transition in your life. 100%. So um, I guess back to sort of the rest of the sort of work you're doing. What, what's, what are the biggest mistakes that you see individuals or um, uh, people uh, trying to do good in small groups or, or, or even bigger organizations? Like what's the big mistake most people are making? Oh, well, I mean, I'm just going by the biggest mistake in my book, uh, just because it's it's there and you can read about it quite easily, is the one thing I talk about, which is the value action gap, which um, really everybody, it's kind of a tragedy that it's not common knowledge. And I really think it ought to be, it really needs to be common knowledge, which is that we all make the assumption that if people just know about something, if you just know about climate change, if you just know about the oceans, if you just know about this, you know about that, then you will change. You'll just do everything differently. And humans don't work like that. Like you can, it's tested, mm. it's been tested many times over. You take people, read a book, watch a documentary on climate change, follow their energy related climate behaviors, and you'll see, you won't see any any um, effect and it's very easy to test they'll try putting out a whole bunch of different flyers researchers will make five different flyers five different designs they always use the um like i think they call it like the, the biospheric appeal is the psychologically mm -hmm. technical term the biospheric appeal means you should do this because the earth matters because of climate change because of the planet the biospheric appeal in many studies i've read always gets zero result it's like nothing like well, sometimes it'll, if you're asking someone to do something, you'll get like maybe 10% of people respond. But you'll, whether you put the biospheric call in there or not, it doesn't. It's just because you're asking somebody to like, please don't litter, please don't litter because the earth matters, doesn't make any difference. Mm. Um, and so we all make the mistake that going for this like call to the earth is strong. It's not. Like, I mean, we care, mm. that's fine. It does lead to caring, but it doesn't lead to action. And action design, behavior design is a totally different profession to getting people to care. If your job mm. is to getting people to keep them awake at night and cry about something, sure. But if your job is to actually get someone to put on a solar panel, change their EV, go plastic free, put in an environmental campaign in their policy, change a law, write to a politician, 
completely different style yeah. of designing to go about it. Um, and so look up value action gap information deficit hypothesis. There's Wikipedia pages on it. You can read about it. Don't fall into the trap that getting people to care about the planet, getting people to know about the planet mm. is going to lead to action. It is it doesn't go anywhere. Mm. And, I, and then I guess like, you know, within that, it's like, well, is writing to our politician the most effective tool? Like if we've got 100 people who are suddenly activated, what, what where, where do we go? Like what's the big you know, return on investment, I guess, for the, for the, for the time. Cause I think this is, again, it's part of the challenge. People, people kind of might care, like you say, they might care if they kind of got to know about it a bit more, but then people are busy. They've got their own bullshit going on in their own lives um, and all the rest of it. So actually making time to go and do something, you want to make sure that you're asking them to do something that's effective. That's going to actually get an outcome. Yeah, well, so you need to really think about that. That's why sort of the book starts with looking at the data, looking at, you know, what's something that you want to work on? Because every issue can be divided up into like 100 sub-issues. So choose a sub-issue. Um, and the thing that really, uh, the, the way to see change is to look at it through social connection. Everything is relationships. One thing is that people copy each other. So any way that you can create something that can get people to copy each other, it can be putting things on Instagram. Look here, I'm doing my thing on Instagram. Oh, look, I'm doing it. You're getting people to mimic it. You know, you made posters and your graphic design and all of that. Mm. And the other one is copying each other. And no, sorry, comparing to each other or competing with each other, which is saying, oh, this is how my data compares to everybody else. Mm. You know, if like 50 people in my community get this average, am I doing 20% worse or am I doing 20% better than everybody? It's called social comparison, social norms. And people are like, oh, yep. I'm doing worse. I better do better. This, everything is through the social lens. That is how people change. So mm. before I was saying like, well, what if I wanted to get everyone in my apartment block to do EVs? The first thing I would do is build a relationship with everybody, human, one-on-one yep. -on -one relationship. And then start using some of these mechanisms like, well, do you know your car uses 20% more fuel is 20% more polluting than the average car. And, you know, I, I ranked, I got everyone's cars and then I ranked their carbon emissions on a leaderboard. And this is, mm. you know, your car's actually kind of down the bottom, you know, maybe you could do this, maybe I could help, but mm. it would be through the lens of the relationships with everybody else. And that's kind of like understanding one of the mechanisms for change. And also the, um, the reward center of the brain, people want to, um, People want to make an action and then they want to see that the action works, which is the feedback. Like I turn off my lights, then I get a text message that says, hey, your carbon emissions have been cut in half. Good job. Nice. You know, you're seeing that feedback. And so we want to see feedback for our action. So that's why things mm. like fish in the sea are very difficult to attach to because we can never really see them. We can't see yes. whether they're doing well or not. You know, um, so I want to try and build where we can this idea of um, the reward system and the feedback and giving us compliments and smiley faces and good job nice. yeah, um kind of into this pat on the head yeah 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 into this and you can kind of like build, build that in you know um and when you know what those things are and i lay them out really clearly in my book i think you can just put in some basic pillars of behavior design so you know you really start to make progress Nice. There's a whole sub conversation happening in the comments uh, about meat, meatless meat, uh, which is really cool. Uh, general consensus seems to be. Um, uh, so Steve was sort of saying, yeah, uh, the guy Pat Brown from Impossible Meat says, you know, the ground product is going to reach a, a crossover with ground brief in the next few years. So uh, essentially his product will be uh, dollar for dollar the same as a normal burger. Um, Kieran was saying, yeah, because um, that's the problem with fake meat, uh, because, you know, the social impact of if it's more expensive, um, it's maybe hard for someone on a, on a, in a lower socioeconomic bracket to get into this stuff. Uh, Steve's saying, yeah, he thinks uh, sea spiracy, uh, some of them claims have been exaggerated. Uh, and Steve has just finished off by saying, yeah, uh, when, when the impossible product is as cheap as normal meat, uh, things are really going to kick off, which is, I, I would imagine is all true. Um, yeah, I guess the other thing with, with fish, like how do you actually count like, you know, to count the number of fish? Like how, how do you not double count fish? It must be impossible. So, you know, you look at I, a, I a, a, a shoal of fish that are, you know, moving around. It's like, yeah, there's definitely... Could, maybe there's like some way that ocean ecologists do it, but I'm not know. even going to go there because I really don't know. I would have oh. no idea what I'm talking about with that. <laughs> I'll, I'll give a shout out to my housemate from university, Ben Ralston, uh, because this 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 scared me and it's, it still scares me to a degree. So he was doing a zoology degree and as part of his final year, he had to do an industry placement. And the industry placement he chose was with like a bug spray company. Um, they, they sold like insect repellents and, and traps and stuff. And he was asked to do a study on uh, like to work out the average number of bugs in a house in the UK. 
And he basically didn't do any work on this. And the night before, you know, he had to come up with a number. He asked, he basically asked all of us in our flat in Cardiff, boys, how, how many flies have you seen this week? And I thought, I don't know, one. Anyway, he, he basically made up a number. Uh, and it got published uh, as, a, as a, like a white paper through the company. And it was even reported in, dare I say it, the Daily Mail. And he came back just like, guys, I think I've made a bit of a... <laughs> My work is now in the media. Um, I just basically made it up. So Okay. Well, yeah, maybe... it wasn't published in Nature Journal. It was no, just the no, Daily no, it wasn't, Mail. Wasn't so we don't need level. to worry. Yeah, 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 we don't need yeah, to worry. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, just I, I kind of feel that's that's maybe the same way that fish get <laughs> counted. At least Ben's now policeman. So we don't want to um... insult any marine biologist no. by assuming that that's no, how I they mean, do it. Totally. I mean, it must be. A, I'm just curious. Maybe, Bubba, if you tune into this, you can let us know how we actually count fish. Um, cool. So biggest mistakes. What's what's the what would be your um, other than obviously go and buy Katie's book because it's amazing and it will answer all the questions that you have about doing more good more effectively. And, and actually, um, I love how you on the front of your book, you got how to how to make change in the world the greatest game we've ever played. And I kind of agree. You know, my background's in sales. And, and I sort of say, you know, trying to convince people to go to the path of purpose and doing more good is it's the biggest sales job I've ever had. You know, you've got to try and convince people that there's a better way of doing something when then when they're very, very fixed to the way they have been doing it. And, and I think the other big thing is, is that sense of identity that people attach to. Well, I am this. And if I have to now say that everything I've held to be true is not as true as I thought it would be or as, or as I thought it to be that's quite confronting. So yeah, that's kind of my, my big sales job. But in terms of um, what would be the one thing you'd say to people who are wanting to maybe transition to do more good? Like if there's an environmental engineer sitting in a building still in Melbourne, crunching numbers on LEDs, um, what would be your some advice to someone like that? Well, I mean, just go through the steps in the book. I mean, my, my book is sort of laid out in this 10-step process that you can take <laughs> anything uh, any branch of anything, if you want to work on forests or, um, you know, coral pollution, energy buildings, cars, um, and just go through it. And it starts off with deeply looking into the numbers. You know, like most people don't take a really deep dive into mm -hmm. um, the numbers. And nothing has helped my creative entrepreneurship like doing this. And the more I look into numbers, the more ideas I get. And then you just ask yourself, well, how would I change the, these numbers? Like recently I started um, mocking up some images of putting um, these lights on electric vehicle chargers that show mm. a, a different colour based on how um, sort of polluting the grid is at any time, right? And I've done a lot of these Photoshop mock-ups of even building applications, you know, real computer applications around this. And I never thought about car charging because I always, in my mind, I put cars in with transportation and I was working on mm. buildings and cars are transportation. So I just had a mental wall up, not thinking yep. about cars. And then as I started to look in the data, like we started to get people's electricity um, data, started to put them in the application, was interviewing people, looking at them. And I'm like, I'm like, oh, fuck, like, cars electric vehicles create a lot of carbon like not compared to the petrol ones but mm. if you don't own a car you might have a reasonably small carbon footprint you have an electric vehicle in there and it goes up like because people right. and the reason it goes up is because people charge them at night when in the evening right. when the when the co2 is very high and so but, but by looking into the numbers that closely with that much granularity I was like oh my god we need to start making these colored lights and working with electric vehicle charging companies and I realized that none of the vehicle charging companies are really doing it like the tiny mm. little bit but not much Tesla doesn't seem to be doing it there's this huge wave about to happen with electric vehicles going to put all this load on the grid it's going to get all this CO2 that it doesn't have to do because we've got plenty of solar here and I'm just like oh my god this is crazy this is a huge mm. entrepreneurial opportunity and like Anyway, point of the story is it came from looking into the numbers more deeply, more deeply. How do we fix it? What's the idea? Just keep doing that. And then, you know, you can read the rest of the book to figure out different ways that you can augment that. But that's the primary um, sort of mechanism. And then looking at different mm. ways to make the change fun and gamified, you know, progress bars, animal characters, color, all that. Yep. Have you um, read a book called Influence by a gentleman called Robert Cialdini? Yes, of course. Good. Um, I've read all really... of the heavy change books on Amazon. Yeah, I bet you have, yeah. <laughs> um, 
because I remember, uh, you know, one of the ones he talks about in his book is the um, in hotel rooms um, when people, you know, throw their towels to be cleaned every day. And I think it was it they they the little um, paper or plastic um, reminder that they say they they tested it and one said, hey, you know, please consider the planet um, by not uh, choosing to have your towels laundered every day. And it had very little change in people's behavior. And then they tested another one, which said something like 80% of people who stayed in this room chose to reuse their towels every day. Um, would you consider being one of them? And because people wanted to fit in with the crowd, um, they were like, oh, well, if most people don't um, wash them every day. I guess I should be the same. So yeah, I think you're just at a really interesting intersection of data and, and humans, which is, it's, it's kind of, it's so obvious that that's what we need yet so few people are doing it, which kind of makes me think you're definitely on the right path. <laughs> well, the thing is that I just learned it from other industries. Like they do it with health trackers, right? There's a whole field that works on this, you know? Mm. They do it with, you know, like when you're speeding and there's that sign on the side of the road that tells you how fast mm. you're going and if you're over the speed limit, it says slow down. I mean, they're doing yep. it with yeah, cars yeah. on the side of the road. It's very simple technology. Like. Mm. The stuff is about, it's just, you know, everybody who works in sustainability has come from environmental science or environmental law or environmental planning or architecture or electrical engineering. I mean, we mm. do not learn anything, absolutely nothing about behavioral science or human influence or storytelling or sales. Like we just don't, mm. it's not in yep. our vernacular of study at all. Like even like the hero's journey. I mean, I was like in my thirties mm. before I'd heard of the hero's journey yep. of how to communicate properly. And I'd also mm. spent five years running a media company doing professional sort of high quality level environmental communications. Mm. Like we're in a bubble. It's crazy. We have mm. to get, get out of the bubble, get out of the bubble. Would you see yourself wanting to be involved with educating the next sort of generation like I could see that you could I mean, I know you've got you've got online training on your uh, on your website, but I mean really because I think you're right, you know, cross sort of cross um, silos, I guess, in terms of education and getting people thinking. I mean, I saw this. I spent ten years selling medical devices, and and you'd be in a hospital, and the neurosurgeons would actively seek to not connect with the orthopedic surgeons. Yet they're both doing spinal surgery. One's coming at it from you know use of microscope and looking for the nerves. The other's coming at it from more of a mechanical orthopedic background. And you kind of go, well, if you two actually work together, you, you'd have the best outcome for the patient because you're you're considering a breadth of issues through two different lenses but with the shared vision of, of, of the best outcome but the ego kind of all got in the way and it's like no neurosurgeons shouldn't even be doing spinal surgery anyway rah, 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 rah. and the neurosurgeons are oh, well orthopedic surgeons they're just carpenters rah, 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 rah. and it's like well you're, you're not putting the patient priority here are you you're, you're putting yourself um and and, you, and your own sort of pride so yeah would that be something that you'd like i kind of feel like someone like you needs to be helping as many people as they can become like you. <laughs> well, I don't know if people, there's a, there's a whole dark side. in the world? <laughs> there's a whole dark side we want to, we don't want to get into. Um, no. It all comes at a, it all comes at a cost in some totally. other sort of way. Um, uh, life's not um, all perfect all the time. So uh, no, we don't want everyone to be more, more like me. The world would become very dysfunctional very fast. If that there would be parking tickets all over the ground, there would be like, <laughs> <laughs> things not lining up properly dishes in the sink unpaid it would be really yeah yeah we need we need all of the more like structured thinkers to balance yep. out the people like me who are very like expansive sort of ideas yep. people um but yeah like i've got a um i would encourage everyone to um sign up for my uh, podcast how to save the world because i have a really cool episode that i just edited that's coming out next month with a guy called jesse shell who wrote a book called the art of game design and he just talks about this like he's so eloquent and um insightful into this one topic which is bringing in different spheres of knowledge so you can innovate because if you think about one thing that is pure creative innovation it's game design and that's what i love mm. about learning from this like the only thing they need to do is be awesomely creative. They literally don't have to do anything else but be cool and fun and engaging. And if they fail at that, they've failed at everything. So they just take it really seriously, obviously. Same with like film, you know, like it just has to be good, right? Um, so, you know, this whole like really thinking deeply about how to be more creative, how to tell better stories, how to engage people, you know, is like central to the DNA of that, that craft. Um, so he talks about that a lot. Uh, and you know what? In sustainability, we talk about it absolutely never, <laughs> never, yep. ever, ever. 
So, um, you know, if you think about it, if your job is to like save forests or the whales or the trees, you know, I think about it, if you were a great creative force, you know, how would you, you do it? You know, how, what could you learn from Hollywood style storytelling? What could you learn from game design? And you find that you can bring wonderful things into it that are really uh, enriching and it becomes a wonderful craft as opposed to like a fight, you know? Um, so yeah, people just gotta like, just really, you know, just go to the complete opposite field, something that you never thought you'd be interested in, read about it and then think like, how would I bring that back home? You know, how would I bring this back to what I do? Even if you do something that would be considered boring, like insurance or policy, a lot of people work on local government policy, very important and influential space. You know, think about, you know, what could you learn from, I was leading to a podcast just before we started this on sports psychology, right? Now I hate mm. sport, never played sport. I hate everything that, about that, I cannot is, hate is sport what, more than you can possibly hate sport. I'm sorry. Is, that, is that where they, did they deport you from Australia for being un-Australian and, and not liking sport? No, I left. I don't like the beach, <laughs> I don't like the sport, and I don't drink alcohol. So I'm very un-Australian. I don't very un-Australian. Yeah, People clearly. tease me all the time. I, I mm. don't fit into the culture there. So, um, yeah. but, you know, I was really curious about this. I'm like, okay, people are so into sport. It's crazy. Like, and I think it's dumb, like running around after a ball. Why would anybody want to do that? People seem to really like it. They've got a whole field of sports psychology, you know, like maybe I should learn sports psychology and then figure out how to bring it into what we do. Mm. And they're very into like leadership and teams and all this nuance mm. in their psychology. And we can really learn from that. So yep. that's something that you could learn and then bring it back in. I mean, evolution of only happens when fields intersect, when we're all just in yep. our environmental science degrees, you know, like, great, do we really yeah. need another environmental science degree just on its own, do environmental science yep. and do, um, I don't know, just do something crazy like performance art and put them together. Mm. Yep. So, yeah, totally right. Because when you're kind of squeezing the lemon of the environmental science knowledge and you're getting down to the nth degree of one little topic that no one no one's like no one's read the 10 research papers that came before your one, which has taken this to the finest point of the wedge. It's like... Yeah, totally agree. It's in the sports stuff. I think I think that's interesting. I think um, for me, I mean, I, I did play a lot of sport. Um, I, I guess it, it's for me. I, I'd link it to that kind of hero's journey. It's it's that concept of um, you know um, living out the the potential ideal of the hero um, and getting to kind of figuratively, or if you played rugby, actually fight other people. Um, to test yourself for that kind of warrior archetype, so I think that's and I think that's why so many people like watching sport because it's like I I'm sitting on my couch drinking beer, eating crap food, whilst watching some amazing athletes perform, and in my mind I'm telling myself I could have been that guy, but I just didn't get that lucky break at varsity or uni or school or whatever. And I think that's why, particularly for guys, it's it's such a massive. It's a, we're living vicariously through the heroes that we watch on the on the pitch, and then you chuck in a bit of sort of general machismo and nationalism on top of it, and it's like fantastic. Everyone's a winner. Yeah, I think but Ben. Hey. I asked once. I had a very um, insightful boyfriend once who worked in film, and I was like, "Why do men love to watch violent films? Like, I mm. can't stand violence. Like, I just not even for one second. I can't mm. deal with it." And he said, you know, he said all men have a, a deep kind of inner sort of genetic itch to um, be that guy, to fight. And yeah. we can't do it in our normal society. So yeah. we vicariously watch it. He's very articulate in the way he explained it. So we like to watch it because we get to live that. So when you think about, you mm. know, sport and violent films, I mean, yeah. women are not that, not as much attracted. Yeah. To um, it's not very cool to kind of divide men and women anymore, but it's one of those things that it's like, well, why yeah. are guys like so into sports, so into violent films? Yeah. Um, because you get that 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 sort of deeper sort of itch to um to fight yeah. kind of out. I, I think it's genuinely. I think, you know, I you sort of ponder and you kind of go, well, if you look at the entirety of history, we've basically at some at some place, and if not all over the world, we've been trying to kill each other on a really regular basis. I mean, uh, humans right have been now, very violent for a very long time. Yeah. So Forever. to me, it, it would suggest that it, that it is not that far beneath the surface. Um, and I think if you look at most drunken towns on a fr on a Friday or Saturday night, it's it's at the surface. People just want to have a go. So I think, but I think for me, that's um, um, that is part of this kind of process that humanity needs to go through is that raising of consciousness and, and realize that for me, you know, saving the world, like that, the, the competition is not me versus you. It's you and me versus no planet. Um, and I think that's all part of 
what you're doing and hopefully what I'm trying to do is, you know, help people um, raise that level of consciousness and realize that there's, there's other battles that you can fight where we need that warrior kind of archetype, that warrior spirit. But instead of punching another bloke in the face, go and punch climate change in the face. Yeah, perhaps. I mean, I personally don't relate to that at all. I'm not trying to punch anyone That's or cool. fight anyone. I'm just perhaps the incarnation of my childhood, which is just drawing flowers. I just want to do like cool yeah. art people like. And now my art is more technically based um, and kind of more behaviorally based, but it's still just kind mm. of like cool stuff I want to make. Um, but no, I have no, no desire to fight, <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> to fight or attack. Um, <laughs> But yeah, maybe that's what everyone's sort of going going through the process of every hundred years. There's this kind of like shedding of the old ways, and then you know, emerging mm. of um of a yep. new style, new new paradigm of being. Yep, definitely. Well, we're we're at the just over the hour mark, and I know you've got to go and uh, you've got to go pick up your daughter. I believe is that what you're after? I or? will. Yes, I have to go Excellent. and get her from school. Very cool. Um, final words of wisdom for people listening in. Um, I feel like, I mean, go buy your book. It seems would be the logical uh, thing. But yeah, anything else you, you sort of want to think about, talk about before we uh, close up the call? Oh, anything that I, I just think I've already talked about so much. I can't, you can't give people like these open-ended things. You have to ask like specific questions. Otherwise they're like, uh. Um, no, I just would like just people to, um, I've been putting out more material on Instagram, like designs and um more podcasts got a couple of really interesting podcasts coming out on my instagram that's um at katie patrick uh hello and uh you know download the energy lollipop chrome extension it's for california but you can see what happens to the grid in real time um and then you know possibly we we can um you know do it for you know other states and countries in the world so you can sort of see a really good example of this fitbit for the planet style of design um and, you know, I'm always pretty chatty on DMs. So people ask me questions and I'm pretty, pretty friendly, like to hear from people. So cool. That's it. Fantastic. Awesome. Well, I'll put some links to your book, um, the lollipop extension, Instagram and your website um, on LinkedIn and on YouTube and on the podcast. But um, really great to see you again. It's been quite a while since we've uh, connected. Great to see you doing well. Um, yeah, really excited to sort of see what happens for you in the next couple of years. Um, and let's see if we can get your lollipop to Christchurch. I'll, yes, I'll I want to see that. I want to see that. Find find someone who can sign off on a little bit of a budget. It doesn't need to be much. Someone who works in government who can sign up just a we, little check and then I, I reckon, postage and we can send it down. I reckon there'd be some funding places we could go to, um, or if yeah. not, some sponsorship opportunities. And once they see it, they'll just be like, "That is so cool." That's we'll awesome. have like we'll have like twenty of them all over the city. And you, you're a professional sales guy, so no one will sell it like you. No, no pressure you know now. Yeah, Absolutely yeah, no right. pressure now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Hey, well, thank you, Katie. Uh, thank you, uh, peoples of the interwebs. Uh, thank you so much for um, everyone's questions today um, on the sea spiracies. A lot, lot of interest in fake meat. Um, so I don't know. I'll, I'll see if I can get Bubba on a uh, on one of these next up, or um, maybe someone involved. I've, I've got a connection with some fake meat people actually. I just um, made in the last couple of weeks. So yeah, thanks for tuning in. Um, we'll catch you next time. I don't think I've got one running next week. Um, but yeah, Katie, thank you so much. Keep being amazing. Keep doing what you're doing and we will catch you soon. There you are. And that's a wrap. Hey, thank you so much for listening into my podcast. I hope you found it informative and inspirational. I'd love to know where you are on your purpose journey. And if you have any specific questions or people you'd like me to interview to help you on that journey, please do let me know. Also, feel free to connect with me on other social media platforms. You can check out all those links in the show notes below. And if you want to see how I might be able to help you specifically on your purpose journey, you can go and check out my website, www.growgood.co, or drop me a line by email, tim at growgood.co. All those links will also be in the show notes. I would genuinely love to hear from you. But anyway, until next time, go well and keep seeking that purpose-fueled performance in your life. <laughs>